Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Hey everyone, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Guy Marzarati in this week for Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown, we're talking with one of the leading practitioners of the dark art of opposition research. That's right. Joseph Rodoto, veteran of Republican campaigns for president and governor, will join us to pull back the curtain on oppo research and talk about the 2020 campaign. But first, Guy, we want to talk about what's already going on in the state capitol where COVID-19 has shaken up plans for an already frantic end of session. Right. It seems to get crazier by the minute. Uh, Here to talk with us about it is KQED politics reporter Katie Orr from Sacramento. Hey, Katie. Hey, guys. So, Katie, can you just like go back a little bit in time? (laughs) Tell us what's happened over the past 24 to 48 hours when it first broke that there was a member of the Senate who had tested positive. Sure. Well, just from my own, um, you know, telling you how I learned about it, I got a couple texts yesterday morning saying, oh, someone in the Senate we think has tested positive for COVID-19. It could be a senator, it could be staffer, you know, so and and you guys know as the Capitol works, everyone often compares it to a high school, you know, like lots of rumors going around to the fact that a staff member for uh, Senator Galgiani tweeted she has not tested positive for COVID. Stop asking me because her name was being like floated around. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, eventually it comes out that, yes, there's someone from the Senate who has tested positive. Later in the day, Senator Brian Jones confirms on Twitter that he is the one that has tested positive. And it's... uh a problem because he had also attended uh, a couple caucus events with the Republican senators. So, you know, the other issue at play here is that the time is running out, basically. They have to be done with their business by the end of Monday night, the 31st. That is in the Constitution. There is not any wiggle room for that. So like, uh, unlike previous breaks in the legislative session this year we that have been taken because of COVID, 
they they can't just stay home for two weeks and wait till people get better. It's not going to happen this time because they have bills that they have big bills that they have to get passed. So fast forward to today, we find out that they're going forward with session, but basically all of the Republican senators are quarantined and are now voting remotely from their homes in uh, within whether that be in Sacramento or their districts. Okay, so given. I think everything we've learned in the past few months about indoor transmission of coronavirus, why was the legislature still meeting in person? And how is that going to change in in these next four days? And are they like showing any remorse over that? Is there any rethinking of this strategy? Well, I think one thing to understand is that there has been disagreement between the Senate and the Assembly whether or not remote voting is allowed. The Senate has maintained that they are allowed to do remote voting, but they haven't actually implemented it yet. This assembly has always maintained that, no, you can't do it. So from the assembly's perspective, they had to be there. That's what the Constitution requires. And so they didn't have a choice. They There have been a lot of measures taken to try to keep people safe. Um, the lawmakers have been spread out, you know, to maintain the six feet of distance. People wear masks. They limit who can ride in the elevator at one time. The public can't go in. Members of the press have to, you know, meet certain standards as well in terms of like not being sick and wearing a mask and keeping your distance. So they've taken those protocols to try and keep people safe. But this just shows you that if if people, individuals don't take the appropriate actions like on their own time, then it can still impact the legislature, which is what we've seen here. And I don't want to like, you know, pile on to somebody who has tested positive, but Senator Jones has been pretty outspoken about both his opposition to the idea of of remote voting, right? The idea that he thinks it's illegal, but also hasn't, judging by his like social media feeds, been taking the COVID, you know, rules at the state and local level very seriously. Right. I mean, there are pictures of him on Instagram from, you know, recently as July um, in big gatherings with people, no social distancing, not wearing masks, things like that. Uh, And as you mentioned, he is a very conservative senator. He's put up posts about the rules around COVID, the state rules um, infringing on people's rights uh, in, in, in certain aspects. So certainly not somebody who appeared to be overly concerned um, with with getting it or I I suppose spreading it. So, Katie, as you mentioned, there's still a lot of business, uh, important business left. You know, they're not just going to spend the rest of the week renaming rest stops. I mean, at this point, <laughs> what gets prioritized? You have eviction protection legislation, a lot of policing, criminal justice reforms. Like, how are they? What's your sense of what's being going to be put forward? Listen, guy, the name of rest stops is very important, number one. Seriously. <laughs> I've used some of those since COVID started and you can't go to restaurants. You anymore. obviously don't have a toddler. No, <laughs> um, no you know, I think it, it does put more strain on the system because especially it's interesting. The Senate is the one with more bills to handle because they've gotten more bills from uh, the Assembly. Uh, the Assembly actually has recessed um 
and will not work on Saturday. They'll come back tomorrow. They'll come back Friday and then they, uh, they're not working on Saturday. I don't expect that that will be the case in the Senate because they have already been, they lost yesterday and they have more to go. And as you mentioned, right, there's a big, uh, eviction moratorium deal hanging in the balance. There are police reform bills. Um, there are workplace bill- bills related, uh, to the COVID-19 pandemic. So, these are not necessarily small bills that maybe they can say, oh, we'll get to it next next year. A lot of these bills are things that will impact people in the moment. For instance, that eviction moratorium is an urgency measure, which means it would take place immediately if it is uh, approved by the governor. Um, Katie, we're going to let you go in just a hot minute, but quickly... I always compare them to, you said high schoolers, I like to say college students, like give them a few more years that, you know, and, and I'm the same, I'm a journalist, like we don't do anything until we have a deadline. Of course. Um, but this deadline, it seems a little unrealistic. How likely is it, do you think that the governor could call a special session to deal with everything you're talking about? Plus, let's not forget wildfires are still raging, COVID-19 is still a worldwide pandemic. Like, is that a possibility? I mean, sure. I think the governor has been asked about this several times, and he said if there is a need for a special session, then we would have a special session. I think they're hoping to avoid that because, as we all know, there is a huge election coming up uh, in less than 100 days. And that uh, is true not just on the national level, but for uh, um, many of the members as well. They have their own elections to to fight and not all of them are for re-election to the legislature you know people are moving on to different <laughs> offices so they don't want to be stuck up here in sacramento with an ongoing pandemic where they might face the issues that they're dealing with right now so i think if they get some of the big things done particularly around like the evictions and and housing things like that uh that we wouldn't necessarily see a special session but it certainly remains a possibility all right, Katie Orr in Sacramento, stay safe up there. Thank you for the update. Thanks, Thank- Katie. Thanks, guys. All right, we're going to take a short break now. And when we come back, we'll be joined by longtime political strategist and opposition researcher Joseph Redota. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.
Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Guy Marzarati, and our guest today is Joseph Rodota. He is a longtime political consultant and opposition research extraordinaire who's worked on campaigns for Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, Pete Wilson, among others, along with ballot measures, including the campaign against ending same-sex marriage in California. Uh, he now hosts the Oppophile podcast. Joe Rodota, welcome to Political Breakdown. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. So first of all, for maybe our uninitiated uh, listeners, can you just tell us, like, what is opposition research? How do you define it? So it's the part of a campaign that uh, has to build through research in libraries, online, and other sources, the uh, argument uh, against the other side. So um, I used to, uh, was trained by a guy in uh, the 80s, and he had a motto, which was, campaigns are won in the library. And so the opposition researcher has to go into the library, which of course is now in part virtual, and put together through the quotes, the votes, uh, other public documents, uh, the story that the campaign is eventually going to tell that will help voters choose between one candidate and another. And so some folks might hear that and say, that sounds an awful lot like investigative reporting. Uh, Like, how would you describe the differences and also how opposition researchers work with the press, how they work uh, to get stories through the press versus what they might hold to air in advertisements or spring up in debates? So uh, it's similar in with, to an, uh, the work of an investigative reporter in the terms of uh, working with documents and working with you know, the, the record. Uh, opposition researchers, though, can't run with just a, um, a quote or something that they learn in an interview. Uh, they actually have to be able to source a document, a piece of paper, a, a piece of video, um, in uh, it sort of has to be in the public domain. Otherwise, it's not it's not uh, usable. But the but the process is very very similar. You uh, you have to uh, do an awful lot of digging. The um, uh, the interaction with the reporters is is interesting and it's also changed. So in in the early days of Oppo, um, before the growth of social media and other innovations, I, what something what, a, what an opposition researcher finds has to find its way to the voter through a journalist. And so a journalist has to, is, is, is sort of the nexus between what is found and what is reported and then what can go into the ad. But now what you're seeing is the opposition research super PACs and the campaigns themselves are just broadcasting directly to the voter through two means, you know, through social media, but also through these sort of news websites that, that look like websites, but are uh, by independent, um, you know, by newspapers, but in fact are sort of part of the machinery of, uh, of the opposition research uh, uh, industry. And you're not just always doing oppo on your opponent, right? Don't you have to run this on your own candidate <laughs> so you know what the heck is going to come? Yes, yes. Um, it's something called self-research. It's also called vulnerability study. And so uh, it's done in various ways. I, uh, I, my, my, just to clarify, my work as an opposition researcher runs from about 84 to 94. That's when I was working in campaigns, partisan campaigns. So that is that begins with Ronald Reagan and that ends with uh, Pete Wilson's re-election. I did come back into it a bit later uh, for... Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger's uh, re-election in 2006. But when I was a uh, in a consulting full-time as an opposition researcher, I would often be brought in to do what was called a vulnerability study. And so you basically take off your hat and put on your opponent's 
research department's hat and you look at your candidate. And that still is, uh, is very, very important. We had an incident here, an example of that uh, failure to do that here in the Central Valley this year where a Republican nominee uh, for Congress ends up having an atrocious um, in the an unacceptable social media presence and he gave various ex explanations none of which made sense to anybody you know somebody took over the account whatever and and so he is effectively that seat's effectively gone and in an era when every contested congressional seat is really really valuable that is an example of uh, somebody who dropped the ball who did not conduct opposition researcher research on this candidate to prepare and evaluate whether you know he was ready for ready for the general election campaign so it still goes on uh, i'll tell you they're not that fun to deliver i've actually had to, you know I, uh, you know to deliver yeah, what's the, the worst one come on oh, tell us Jeff. no i can't but i, I don't want and it's just this candidate just the eyes just like what are you talking about and i was just i left the room and uh, and it was like you know but but this you know it is what it is so um well it's like uh, that person did it whatever it was he's like it's i'm glad life. i'm glad you're working for me <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> yeah so, so uh yeah so so you you, you want to do both you want to do both so you laid out a little bit of the timeline of your own work um i want to ask just kind of how you started i mean you were working in the reagan administration in the mid 80s what then drew your interest to this campaign research work so um I'm a history major from Stanford, so I have the you know uh, first of all 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 the opposition researchers I know they sort of started they didn't start as communications major they started as like history majors you know they're like oh my god look at all those documents I get to look at like this is gonna this is heaven so in a world of pol in the political world uh, people are extroverts right you, and they just love you know they love being out there love being on camera opposition researchers by nature are introverts and they like to read and pull pull things together so that was that's kind of my, my my launching out of stanford was you know as a history major i ended up in washington um and i i had to i was working in the senate and i got an assignment from my boss uh that a columnist george will was interested in senator walter mondale's voting record because he was working on a column about mondale and defense and so i had to put together the, the material which we sent over to Will and he ends up writing a column about um, about Mondale and, and so I had this like little you know a little bit of an experience with it and then when I was in the uh, Reagan administration I got word that they were forming this new unit at the Republican National Committee and there were interviews happening like this week like they're just they're staffing up right now and I had somebody like you got to get my name in there and so I went in and I did my interview and so I was hired um, and I was in I was 24 and I joined this group it was the first time that computers had been sort of attached to opposition research so this is 84 so it's pre-internet and we had people we had people who would get boxes of newspaper articles and congressional records and stuff and they would go through and they would mark them up with their red pens and then somebody would type and people would type everything into a database and then that database becomes the thing that you can mine later um, and i uh, so that's uh, that's how it started and i got hired into the white house after that so you work in the white house and then i think we should jump forward to the 88 campaign because that's really where there's so much there's so much there um, the, go ahead. 
Yeah, the 88 campaign. Sorry, uh, do you want to? We... Yeah, no, I just, I mean, this was um, Michael Dukakis. This was uh, George H.W. Bush. Um, Bush was not doing great that summer. Uh, it looked like there was a lot of, you know, people, he had been the vice president. There, people were familiar with him. I mean, talk about that campaign and like, was there like an aha moment where you guys went, oh my gosh, this Willie Horton thing is going to be the thing or that broadly, we know that there's these weaknesses. Like how, how did that kind of come about? So in 88, I was actually out here in uh, California. I was with the Bush California campaign. So uh, you know, my uh, the 84 team had kind of morphed into the 88 team. Um, and in, in the show, Oppo File, um, I interview a, in one of the episodes, uh, a guy who's like 23, and he's in charge of driving the Winnebago full of opposition researchers up to Boston to vacuum up all of the records of Michael Dukakis. And they planned it like it was the Normandy invasion. <laughs> you know, they, they had teams, they had metrics, you know, and they were just going to get, they had an RV park that they had identified and everybody fans out across the city. So the story of the 88 campaign, which is becoming more and more interesting to people this year, is that Bush was behind by 17 points. Dukakis uh, was considered a moderate, centrist, um, effective governor of Massachusetts. And uh, and the opposition research was the key. That was how that is how Bush is in part how Bush transitions from 17 points behind to a very, very big win. And he, uh, Lee Atwater, who is, uh, becomes a very, is a very famous hard knuckled, brass knuckled, hard charging, uh, political, uh, campaign guy, um, who's, who's passed away in the nineties. He asks the researcher, research director, put everything on this three by five card that we need to win this campaign. And on that card is the story of William Horton. He goes by William, um, but it becomes famous as Willie Horton. Um, and so this, so Bush uh, launches at the campaign a, a very tough attack personally on uh, a, a by name, not by name, but he aims right at Dukakis's untold liberal record. And that's the campaign that, that Bush runs and, um, and he emerges victorious. You mentioned people have been making comparisons this year because of the polling deficit that President Trump faces. Um, I wonder, you know, both uh, Michael Dukakis and, and Mondale in 84, to a greater extent, had been in the public eye. And that's obviously the case with Joe Biden. He's been vice president. He'd been in the Senate for decades. Does there come a point from an opposition research perspective where you hit a wall in terms of, you know, these people have been vetted. There's There's only so much we can know about them. And then it becomes... How do we find a specific issue and reframe it in a certain way? Well, some of it is reframing, but then um, also there's this phenomenon of sometimes everything old is new again. And mm -hmm. so what happens after 88 and the demolishing of Dukakis on crime is all the all political candidates, especially Democrats, move hard to the right on criminal justice matters, including Joe Biden. And so from 88 to the mid 90s, you see, you know, this is the 100,000 cops on the street. This is three strikes. This is Dianne Feinstein challenging the Democratic Party and getting booed over her support for the death penalty. And so, you know, those 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 points were made that uh, Barbara Boxer was getting endorsements from police unions. And so so now in this current environment, you look, you know, the, some of those comments and some of those votes 
you know, are being looked at in a different way. And then there's also the, you know, even if somebody's been um, been picked over, if they haven't had um, picked over, their records has been picked over, but maybe hasn't been done you know, completely, you know, to the nth degree, and maybe there's something left. I'll give you an example. So. In uh, Virginia, the governor of Virginia had run several times for office. He'd been therefore theoretically vetted by uh, his various opponents and by the media. His his uh, gubernatorial challenger, the Republican, was actually the former chairman of the Republican National Committee at one point, and therefore employed a floor of opposition researchers, and they didn't do enough opposition research. And after the guy gets elected, it is revealed by you know, a local journalist that in the medical school yearbook of this man, he is in blackface. And and so that's that's something this guy's been vetted three times. Right. right. So so you never know. And to me, I, I my, as a, when I was a partisan opposition researcher, it's like I would kind of stop working on the Friday before the Tuesday. You know, that's like that's like the last time I would ask somebody to go find me something was like Friday. Okay. So you just kind of you just sort of keep going. So that brings up a good point, though, because he the Virginia governor didn't actually resign. He weathered the storm. And I think that that is a really good transition to 2020 in this sense of like, are we in a post oppo research world, at least with Trump? Um, and he was a Democrat, but mostly it feels right now like some of the attacks on Democrats are still working. But this president seems very immune to the kinds of attacks that I think normally would have potentially even sunk a campaign or presidency. Is he oppo proof? Yeah. He, he, so this is uh, so the show oppo file, the podcast is about the history and practice of oppo research. So we interview opposition researchers talk about and explain how, how it works. But we also look at oppo and how it affects campaigns. And, and one of the things I'm exploring is like what happened in 2016, right? So because if you lead up to the 2016 campaign uh, and you look at the, the presidential campaign just prior is Romney versus Obama and Obama's researchers just demolish uh, Mitt Romney's record and turn his business success Bane turns it into a four-letter word, and and so that's considered like the heyday. And at this point, 2016, and after that campaign, in the famous um, postmortem you know, analysis that uh, Prebus that the RNC puts out of how they need to change things, you know, we need to reach out to m women and minorities. We need to, uh, but they also say we need our own opposition research super PAC that can compete with the opposition researchers on the other side. So this is idea that there are these giant, there's these armies of opposition researchers and they are going to chew up the other, the candidate. And so into that environment walks Donald Trump. And a couple things, um, first of all, you, uh, Marisa, you asked about uh, vulnerability studies. So Trump's staff in 2016 asked him if they, he would let them put together a vulnerability study, and he said no. He said not, not, it's a waste of money, and he wouldn't let them do it. So that's an that's that's unusual. Second thing is in the primary, if you look back at that at that moment. Um, the, his challengers are all researching each other. There's this a thought that uh, you know Trump is in this lane, and I need to win this other lane here, so that I'm the one at the very end. And so they're all researching each other, and and they're not doing the heavy lift into the record of Donald Trump that 
you know, when, when they needed to be done. And it's later done using public documents by the New York Times, Washington Post, and others. And so Pulitzers get handed out, but they get handed out in like 2018, you know? And right. so, the, so, so, uh, so that doesn't answer- But he answer... still seems like it doesn't stick, even as a well, president, right? Yeah, so um, I, I sat in on a talk by uh, some of the primary, uh, the, the 2020 Democratic candidate opposition research directors. I sat into like a roundtable and listened to them. And their view was uh, that it wasn't a question of finding anything new about Trump. It was a question of making your points and reframing and, and just stating your case. And so we sort of see that in the last two weeks mm -hmm. is, is, is the, you know, the oppo research is sort of recycled, right? You know, that's what happened. The Democratic campaign, there's nothing really new coming out. And so that's that's sort of the play. The opposition researcher's job now is to organize and make things available, but it's not necessarily to go out and discover that that moment uh, it was available in 2016 and it was missed. And so you're in sort of a different environment. And so we're taping this um, Thursday afternoon before the last night of the Republican convention. I guess on the Trump offensive side, what would you look for tonight? I mean, is it again going back and maybe reframing things in Joe Biden's record as opposed to bringing up new information? So I th um, what uh, what he seems to be doing, and he's the speech has already been previewed. It'll be an assault on uh, Biden's record, the Obama Biden record on immigration, probably Ebola, taxes, and, and crime, um, and uh, most of it we've we've heard before. There was one thing that was new in the last uh, in the last week, um, and that was on the last day of the Democratic convention, and uh, Trump. Uh, went on the attack, an attack against Senator Harris, and with something new, and or what, what I had not seen before from him, and he zeroed in on a specific uh, case of a specific um, uh, individual who was put into a drug treatment program, a, a, a jobs program as an alternative to um, prison in a program that Senator Harris ran when she was district attorney of San Francisco, and, it, and the New York Times and others looked at that and said, that's a Willie Horton style attack. And mm. so mm. He, he rolled out this, there was a specific, very specific to illustrate the point he's later going to make. That, that's a, that was classic opposition research as an echo of 1988. And uh, we, we may see more of that. You know, that's, uh, that may, we may never hear of that point again, or we may hear a lot of it. We don't know. So maybe more attacks on Kamala Harris than Joe Biden, which is not uh, far from what we've seen in California in her past campaigns. Um, well, we're going to have to leave it there. Make sure you check out the Oppo File podcast. Some fascinating history in there. Joseph Redotto, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. That's going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We are a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Tovin Lindsay, Vinnie Tong, Erica Aguilar, and Jonathan Blakely. I'm Guy Marzarati. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Guy Marzarati. And I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at MLagos. Thanks for listening. Hi. 
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast.